0: Well, a few more folks here today. Nice to see you. Haven't seen some of you before, so welcome. Glad you're here. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity, Mike. Maybe you especially, but you know, you're going you're bringing a message, and the message is working on you all week long. So I, I've had this message in mind for a while. I've been preparing it, working on it, and it just kind of I struggled with it all week. Because it, it had to work in me before I could even try to bring it here today. This, uh, two things happened this week. I'm driving home from, from work and just about every afternoon at the corner of Oberlin Avenue and Tower Boulevard on one, one side of the intersection sits one young man and across the street sits another young man and they kind of rotate back and forth. And they have little signs you know, God bless you, homeless or a veteran or whatever it may be, uh, I need help. And, and I, I, I drive by these two men all the time. And I look at them and I go, man, you guys, you're, you're young. You look healthy. You got better shoes on than I've got. What do I do? I know what the Lord says. I'm supposed to reach out to these guys and help them. But I feel like at times, am I, am I really... If I do give money, am I making the best investment, the best use of my finances? Because these guys look like they could just go down the street and get a job and, and carry on. I struggle. I don't know. Do you struggle with that? Anybody else? Okay, I'm not alone in that one. I struggle. And the Lord and I are still struggling with that one. I, I don't know what to do with that, honestly. So the Lord, Lord's working on me in that area. So I, I'm bringing that to this message this morning because I've been wrestling with it all about faith that works, what do I do? What do I do? We're going to get there. We're going to get there. So uh, Friday, Friday afternoon, five-ish, get a, a console or a, a page from the hospital coming down to the emergency department. So all it says is, the emergency department, we need you. Okay. So that's typical for chaplains. We get those calls down there for all kinds of situations. So as I'm heading down there, my wife texts me. She said, I just saw the page. We're on lockdown. You be careful when you go down there. I'm like, lockdown. Oh, sweet. Okay. This means it's a gunshot. Gunshot victim. Okay. So I get down there, and a 50, 54-year-old gentleman has been brought in to our trauma room, and, and uh, he was shot. And uh, this, the story is kind of convoluted. I'm not sure what is the actual story, but he was shot in the back. Whether he was trying to break up a fight or whether he was just caught in the crossfire, I, I don't know what happened. So he's in, in the trauma room. Family is gathering in our family room. I have them p- take the family in there, and, and I'm waiting to see. What, I, what are the police going to do? What are our doctors going to do? Are they going to go talk to the family? What are, what are we doing here? And about an hour goes by before finally what the, the uh, I guess she's the assistant manager. She comes in and she goes, anybody talk to the family yet? The family's out there. Anybody? Well, the detective went out there and had, or one of the, not the detective, the sergeant went out and had a little chat with them, kind of, you know, Doctors are working on things. We don't have any information yet, So but they didn't tell him that the guy passed away or anything like that. So eventually, the nurse says, well, well this is no good. We can't have this. And she, she says, I'm going to get the doctor. So the doctor, emergency doctor, he says, okay, I'll go out and talk to them. And you know, security's right there. Well, we'll go with you. No, no, I don't need you. I just need the chaplain. Oh, great. <laughs> we're walking into, I don't know what we're walking into because in those situations, there's a lot of emotion. A lot of anger, a lot of suspicion. You don't know what you're going to walk into. I walk into the scene and there's the victim's mother, probably in her 70s. There's the victim's stepfather, same thing, probably in his 70s. One of the victim's children is there. She's, I don't know, probably in her 20s. And uh, Doc comes in and just explains what happened, what they know. And, uh, you know, the emotion surfaces. And then some more children show up and, and they kinda get to see the looks on the faces. You've seen that look on the face, right? When somebody passes and you you kind of suspected it, but you didn't know for sure, and he just blows up. And I've seen that happen before too, when especially in gunshot situations, people just blow up, especially younger folks, and they just lose it. And I'm in the midst of a situation, how do I make my faith work here? Here is a family that is just devastated, one of the EMS personnel that brought in this, this gentleman. It was her first time with a gunshot victim, and she was just devastated. She was wailing, not wailing, but she was weeping. And the rest of the staff are there like, oh, it's okay, it's your first one, you'll get over it. You know, it, it gets better as you go along, and they're just kind of, I'm looking at this young lady as, as they're trying to make her feel better by their kind of their flipping comments or the way they handle this, have learned to handle it over time, becoming desensitized to it. And she is just broken, just crying. And I just kind of saddled up beside her, put my arm around her. Not supposed to do that with COVID-19, but you know there are situations where people just need that kind of support. And I said, look, honey, don't, don't let them make you feel bad for your tears. Your tears are important. Your tears are expressing some emotion that you're experiencing don't ever lose your humanity. Don't ever lose your sensitivity to what's happening because this is somebody's child, and mom is out there, and she is broken. Dad is out there, and he is broken, and the children are out there, and they are absolutely broken. Your tears, your emotion is absolutely appropriate. Don't, don't ever lose that. And, and she appreciated that. You get into situations, that's probably extreme, None of you, hopefully, will ever have to experience anything like that. But you find yourself in situations, and you go, how, how do I make my faith work in this situation? Do I give money? That mom that lost the son, I got alongside her too and gave her a hug at the end of it all because I just, I'm a father. I have four children. This was her oldest son that had been killed in a seemingly random, stupid thing. How do we make our faith work? It's not just something we, we verbalize and we say, yeah, I, I've got this faith. It, it's a faith that has to have feet. It's a faith that has to have flesh. It's, it's a faith that requires action. Otherwise, it's as, as uh, James says, it's dead. We're, we're, we're kind of jumping here from First Corinthians 13 over to, to James in just a minute, but I kind of wanted to set the stage for this. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 describing the preeminence of love in our relationships and and how do we express that love in our relationships, even with people we don't know. So I didn't know that mom, I didn't know that EMS lady. I don't know these guys that, that stand on the corner. I don't know them, but somehow I've got to be able to express my love and God's love to them and for them. And so Paul discusses the continuing significance of all the gifts of the Spirit in that chapter for the proper functioning of the church and the church's ability to fulfill her mission of seeing lost people found and seeing those found people grow in their relationship with God so that they can express that love to people that they have in their lives. He discusses knowledge and what we can know now and what we can only see dimly right now. He closes out the chapter with this statement, these three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love And the greatest of these is love. So I've been reflecting on this verse as I shared, and I've been reflecting on my life and and how I view this and how I deal with this. And and then God brings not just these experiences into my life this week, but other things to challenge me and to cause me to go, hmm, what am I supposed to do with this? I can't just have this intellectual thing I call faith. It's got to be something that's practical, that demonstrates the love of Christ. So I've I've kind of begun intentionally to view life through the lens of faith, hope, and love. I've I've shut out the noise around me. i turned off the news. I'm about to turn off social media because I'm just sick of it. And I'm, I'm trying to listen to what is the Spirit saying? Because ultimately that's the voice we as believers need to be listening to. And he's going to be speaking to all of us in these three areas at some point in our lives. If he hasn't already, this week he will be. He'll be challenging you. Faith, hope, and love. How do we live those things out in our relationships with people? What, what is our world lacking today? Something to believe in? I hear the cry, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle. We need somebody to lead us out of this mess. So we're in the midst of the political season, and I absolutely hate the political season. It seems like it's always there, but I hate it. Because of the rhetoric, because of the promises, because I know nobody's going to fulfill these promises. Because of the anger, because of the attacks, because of the attack ads, because of all the stupidity that comes with politics. I I hate it. People are looking for something or somebody to believe in. They're, 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 there's this cry for hope. We feel like we're in a hopeless situation in this world. We're going to look at that in, in a couple of weeks' time. A hope that anchors. We, the, the world is looking for hope. We have a hope. And it's an anchor for our soul. It, it makes us safe and secure. That hope is Jesus. And then... He talks about faith or love, and, and it's a love that empowers us. It's not just the love that makes us feel good, and we have this great relationship with God. We're good. It's a love that empowers us to take that love to the people in our lives and the people in our communities, the people that we work with. So that's kind of where we're going, we'll be going over the next few weeks as I have opportunity uh, to bring this to you. So before we go any farther, let's, let's pray for a moment. Lord God, we we come to your word and I I confess your word has been challenging me this week and I recognize how far short I I seem to be falling. Even as as I reflect on this message today, I have so far to go yet, but I pray that you will, uh, your amazing grace will, will be there to spur me on, to shore me up, to encourage me, to lift me up when I fall down and when I fail and to help me press on in my journey, and I pray that for all of us, but begin today, speak to us, teach us, and guide us into all truth, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What is faith? You can answer that. Okay, the good Hebrew answer there can't go wrong with that answer. You can't go wrong. What is faith? Believing in something. something. Trust. Trusting. Somebody said trusting. Good. Knowing Knowing that the Lord's in control. Anything else? What is faith? It's not mere intellectual assent or a wistful desire. I guess I should... I always forget about this thing. That's why I should have somebody else doing it, because I never remember. Yeah? Uh, Switch on the side. Me and technology. There we go. What is faith? It's not mere intellectual assent... Or I don't know why I always wanted to turn around and point it at the, at the wall there. That's my age, right? It's showing my age, my, my lack of understanding of technology. I don't know. Not mere intellectual assent or wistful desire. I hear that a lot in the hospital. Patients that I talk with about their faith, it, it's this intellectual assent that they have. This, I grew up in church and, and the Bible, and it's, it's kind of this weird thing that, that, that is spoken of when they describe their faith but it's all up here, it's not here. There's a difference. There's a huge difference. And it's certainly not a wistful desire for something to to, to work out well for me. It's, It's much more than that. It's something that you live out in your daily life and it's as it's lived out 24-7, it impacts people that, have, that we have contact with. So it's not just something I talk about and I do on Sunday. It's something that I live. I live out before the people around me. Faith is not just talking a good talk. It's living out that talk in our daily lives. And that's when people begin to see the difference. You can talk all kinds of things and you can, you can share the gospel and you can know the Bible inside and out, but unless they see it lived out in your life, it's, it's just noise. It really doesn't make a difference. There has to be something that backs it up. And so, according to James, faith requires three things. Action, action, compassion, and evidence. Action, compassion, and evidence. So let's explore this faith that works. And if you've got your Bibles, turn over to James chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14, uh, right to the end of the chapter, 26, but focusing on 14 to 18. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. That's me or those guys standing on the corner. Although they have clothes. And they look to be in pretty decent health. That's my wrestle right there. Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. But does nothing about his physical needs. What, what good is he? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is What? That's a tough word right there. It's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And James is quick to point out, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So it's not just about what I believe and how I can come to church, and how I can look good on the outside, and I can have all the Bible knowledge in the world. It's got to translate into a changed life, and a life that's producing fruit, fruit that lasts. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Love descriptive words that he throws in there. Useless, and it's dead. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by by his faith alone. That's controversial right there, isn't it? I grew up in the era of church where if you talked about any kind of social action, you were a heretic. I grew up in fundamental churches. So if you started talking social action, social justice, you weren't even a Christian. I guess we struggled with this passage. In the church I grew up in. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So I just encourage us all to kind of pause where we're at and reflect on this passage and allow God by His Spirit to kind of look inside us and take an inventory. He's been doing that in my life all week, and it's not pleasant, got to tell you, but it's necessary. If we're going to push on in this Christian life and we're going to have a faith that makes a difference, and we're going to grow into Christ-likeness, we have to allow Him and invite Him to do that inventory work in us to challenge us. So, faith requires action. There was an early church father named, and i got to love this name because I can't even pronounce it, o- uh, Ocumeneus. Ocumeneus who said, take note, of what a spirit of, take note of what spiritual understanding really is. It is not enough to believe in a purely intellectual sense. There has to be some practical application for this belief. Okay, so this is an early church father writing. Take note of what spiritual understanding really is. It's not enough to believe in a purely intellectual sense. There has to be some practical application for this belief. So think with me about the early church. What we know about the early church, what we read about the early church in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, that is the kind of church that is being called for today. The early church faced all kinds of challenges. Government that was against them. Religious leaders that were against them. In fact, I read the other day there that the early church, the Christians, were actually considered to be atheists by the Romans because they did not believe in or serve or call their gods Lord. They called the one God Lord. And so they were called atheists because they didn't believe. Isn't that a little bit ironic, a little bit strange to hear? We, we consider ourselves to be Christians, and those who, who don't believe in God, we call them atheists. Back in the day, we were the atheists because we believe something completely different. The, that's James' point here. What, what good is faith that doesn't do anything? It just comes to church and sits and gives its money and goes home and lives life. He calls that faith useless. In verse 14, he tells us, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? James's statement raises two rhetorical questions about faith without deeds. What good is it? And he says, it's of no good. And can it save? And his answer is No. That's shocking to hear, perhaps, for some of us. It would have been shocking for me to hear back when I was growing up in my church. What do you mean? That's what James is saying. This person who claims to have faith, obviously, I should move on here. We're getting there. This person that claims to have faith obviously thinks that his belief alone, without any good action, deeds done in obedience to God, is satisfactory in God's sight. However, faith not accompanied by deeds has no saving value, according to James. Anyone can say he has faith, but if his lifestyle remains selfish and worldly, then what good is that faith? I had a conversation with one of my fellow chaplains this last week. We both come from evangelical traditions and uh, holiness kind of traditions. And so we, we both struggle with our Catholic brethren and our mainline brethren who feel free to use all kinds of choice words and participate in all kinds of actions and activities that we probably would consider to be unholy. And we struggle. What is the concept of holiness outside of the evangelical church? What does it look like to be holy? And then I think about C.S. Lewis smoked a pipe or a cigar, I forget which one it was, and you read his stuff, and you go, man, the guy's right on, but he didn't do things the way I was taught to do things. And I remember we walked, my wife and I were first married, we just offer, uh, Ma, we were just into our first church as youth ministry, and we didn't have a home yet, we we're just new into the community, and, and so the, uh, one of the couples from the church was going to be gone for a couple of weeks, and they said, well, you can use our home for two weeks, beautiful home with a swimming pool, I mean, we were living really well. And he said, whatever we got in the house is yours. If you find, you know, whatever food's in there, whatever, just help yourselves to anything in the home. I'm like, wow. So newlyweds, fresh out of college, broker than broke, have nothing except a car and a few clothing. Walk into this beautiful home, we start opening up cupboards and kitchen, the pantry, and we're like, whoa. We've never eaten like that. <laughs> and then I saw a couple of bottles of wine. And I, ow. How can that be? It didn't register in my mind. How can it be? These people, they're Christians and they drink wine. It just shocked me. And I began to judge them right then and there. And then over the time that I was in that church, I got to know them and I got to see a faith that was truly genuine. A faith that gave and gave and gave, not just to people in the church, but people outside the church. And, And a faith that loved all kinds of people. And my concept of holiness was being rocked then and it continues to be rocked today. It's not about the, the, the actions that I think are pleasing to God. It's, it's this heart that's open to God, this heart that's willing to do whatever God is asking me to do, to be there for other people. Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God said this: What you do in response to God's revelation, his invitation to the task, reveals what you believe about God. True faith requires action. What you do in response to God's revelation reveals what you believe about God. So, there I am driving by those guys. Every afternoon, and I'm looking at them, and I'm going, what do I do? And I think, I hear this little voice in the back of my... You ever get those little voices in the back of your head saying, you know what you have to do? I never carry cash. I'm part of this cashless society now, I guess. But I just never carry cash, so I have no money to give. So what do I do? So I'm praying, Lord, give me some creative ideas. What do I do to help these these young men? that are standing there, rain or shine, wind or whatever, they're there. What do I do? Because I want to be true to who I believe I am. I want to be true to the faith that I believe that I possess. I want to become more and more like Christ. So what is that going to look like in relationship to these young men? You can't just talk about faith. You've got to express it outwardly. If faith is not expressed It dies. It withers inside of us and it dies if it's not expressed outwardly in some manifestation. So Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 and he says, For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Faith expressing itself in love. It it does no good to tell someone about your faith if they can't see it. I don't know if you agree with that statement or not, but that's where the Lord is working on in me. It does no good to tell someone about your faith if they can't see it. What good is faith that doesn't reach out to those in need? That kind of faith is like the Pharisee in the parable of the Good Samaritan who saw a man in need and walked by him and did nothing and said nothing. Maybe he clucked his tongue and thought, you probably deserve that. You were probably doing stupid things and you got what you deserved. We need to have a faith that shows the love of Christ in action. We need to have the kind of faith that says, I love you because... There it is. We need to have faith, the kind of faith that says, I love you because Jesus first loved me. It's the kind of faith that says, let me help because God showed his grace to me. God reached down and helped me in my deepest, darkest need. Let me help you. It's the kind of faith that says, let me help you in your hour of need because Jesus helped me in my hour of need. That's the kind of faith that saves. And then Jesus tell, or James tells us next, faith requires compassion in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, <laughs> keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical need, what good is it? The situation in James's illustration is technically hypothetical. I he says the word suppose, so he's, he's kind of throwing it out there. Suppose! but probably one he considered quite realistic. I think we can all consider it realistic because we all live it. We all experience it. We all face it, if not daily, at least on a weekly basis. The needs are all around us. James's statement of a brother or sister reflects an envisioning of real action towards real people. We already know many of his readers were living in economic hardship his illustration does not imply that all Christians were living in poverty, but that in their, in, the, in their midst they would encounter cases of hardship as severe as a lack of sufficient clothing and even a day's supply of food. A hypothetical response to the need is good wishes without any actions. For the needy ones are merely dismissed with words, with friendly words. Go well, friend. I wish you well. Be well fed. (laughs) God bless you. Maybe God would use us to be that blessing, to bring that blessing. I know most of the time my response is go in peace. But I also know that the Lord is not letting me off the hook with this anymore. demanding from me, at least, a faith that works. And in my setting where I work, we work with the underserved, we work with the poor, we work with the marginalized, we work with the drug addicts, we work with the bipolar, we work with all these people that have these issues, these struggles. Those are the people that come into our hospital on a daily basis because they can't go to the Cleveland Clinic because they don't accept them because of their insurance. And our hospital's history has been that our our hospital was raised up by women of faith who came over from France because they saw a great need. And they began to care for the poor, the the, the underserved, the marginalized, the dying, that weren't being cared for by anybody else. That's who we are as a hospital. And our, our mission statement says, we extend the compassionate ministry of Jesus. Isn't that amazing for a, for a public institution to have a, a mission statement like that? I, I wish our churches would have mission statements like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of it, and then the Lord is bringing this message into my mind and into my heart that I have to wrestle with and I have to do something with. And it's telling me that faith requires compassion. I just can't look at, at the people that 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 just can't seem to take care of themselves, don't have the capacity to take care of themselves, maybe don't have the mental capacity to take care of themselves, are caught in this endless trap of drug addiction and can't seem to find their way out of it. Alcoholics that when they come into the hospital, they get so violent, they have to be restrained, in four-point restraints so they don't hurt themselves or the staff. Those are the people that God brings across my path daily. And I can cluck my tongue at them, and I can stick my nose up at them, and I can, you brought this on yourself. It's your fault. But then I have to kind of go, hmm, extend the compassionate ministry of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus would have compassion upon these people. Jesus had compassion on the people that the religious establishment wouldn't have compassion on. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells the following story. He says, I heard this story from a friend who works with a down-and-out in Chicago. A prostitute came to me in wretched wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me she had been renting out her daughter. Two years old. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. Does that break your heart? She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. He writes, I will never forget the look of pure naive shock that crossed her face. Church? She cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. What struck me about my friend's story is that the woman, much like the prostitute, fled toward Jesus, not away from Jesus. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. As the church... Lost that gift. Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. I don't know you as a church. I don't know where you land with with this kind of stuff, but I invite you to reflect. The church we attend in Lorraine is... It's a real mixture of, it's very diverse Hispanic, black, white, poor, middle class. I don't think there's too many upper class people there. They come in all shapes and sizes and all smells and <laughs> manners of dress. <laughs> it's really an interesting experience. And each one has a story to tell. And each one, I, I, the youth pastor, I love him, um, Jose. Puerto Rican, black. I mean, you can't get much blacker than him. But Puerto Rican. I I watched as he came in one day, in and I was ushering, and he came in and he had this row. This I don't know. Must been like half a dozen or a dozen young people, mostly guys, and and like they'd never been in church before. Phenomenal from the neighborhoods. He brought them all in, sat them down on the chairs right in front of me, and he said, "Okay, now everyone just sit here and listen." Don't move. <laughs> it was just fascinating to watch these guys. They're all looking around like, this is really strange. What have you brought us to? And they sat there and they listened. They talked amongst themselves and kind of, you know, shared their feelings, or whatever. But this guy has been working with these kids from the neighborhood for, I don't know, a couple of years now as, a ch- as they sought to establish the church. And he's, he's right in the midst of them all, loving on them. Sharing life with them, encouraging them. Wednesdays they get together for Bible study in the church and they've got this great big youth room set up and, and he's right there with these kids, loving on them, in spite of who they may be, what their backgrounds might be, what what they bring with them. These are inner city kids to the core. And he's right there with and loving on them, showing them the love of Jesus, providing when they need food, he's providing it for them. He's demonstrating this compassion that James is talking about, accepting these kids from where they are and what, what they bring. Our faith is expressed by compassion for others. Matthew captures this image of Jesus for us when he says, when Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the crowds. Do you see the crowds? When you see the crowds, when you see the protesters, what what goes on in your mind? Is it anger? Is it repulsion? Or is it they are confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? The Gospels repeatedly tell us that when Jesus saw the crowds of people, he had compassion on them. When we see the crowds, what do we feel? How do we feel? Do we have compassion or do we feel contempt? When we see people in need, do we think of ways to help or do we wonder what they did to get, them, that's, to get into that situation? That's me when I'm driving by these young men all the time. What did you do to get yourself in that situation? You should have known better. You look like you're an intelligent young man. How could you... The, the battle that's going on in my mind in those moments is just phenomenal. I can justify I'm driving right by and doing nothing. And, and God's not letting me get away with it anymore. So now I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. Why is it that when Jesus walked the earth, the helpless flocked to him? Man, I'm terrible at this. Why is it that when Jesus walked the earth, the helpless flocked to him, but today they shy away from his church? When we see the crowds, do we seek ways to help or reason why we can't? It's wonderful that last Sunday you guys had an opportunity to kind of minister to your community. But is that like a a once-a-year thing? Or do you find other ways as a church to minister to your community. I love our church. We've got a garden now. We're growing vegetables and to hand out, to give to the community. Uh, they take turn at the Salvation Army providing, providing lunches. They're finding ways. They're, we've got this building. It used to be a YMCA. We bought the building. And they're turning it over more or less as a community center for the community. So we use it on Sunday and, and sometimes through the week for Bible studies or whatever. Well, not so much right now with COVID, but there's the building. And my fear was, look, you've got people in that built facility that are, that are out their community. They're not part of the church. Aren't you afraid they're gonna, you know, rob you? Or they're gonna do, no, no. It's the Lord's building. He'll take care of it. Plus we've got cameras set up. We can see what's going on, <laughs> technology. But this building is not for us. This building is for the community. It's so people can come in and be welcomed and be loved and be nurtured and provide for them in some way, food or whatever it may be. We're here for our community, and that's the whole focus. It's amazing. Jesus, the crowds flock to him, the church. Where are the flocks? Where are the crowds? Where are the hurting? This leads us to what James says next. Faith requires evidence. Verses 17 and 18. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, I don't like to say it, because it's dead. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone says to me, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. That's convicting to me. I'm going to quote somebody here that I would probably never in my life ever quote. I don't agree with his politics. I don't really agree with the man himself. Senator Cory Booker. U.S. Senator from New Jersey. I'm quoting him because I hear these words all the time in the hospital from people that are patients. He wrote these very provocative thoughts a number of years ago while he was still the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. And I invite each of us to consider these words. Don't speak to me about your religion. First, show it to me in how you treat other people. Don't tell me how much you love your God. Show me in how much you love all of God's children. Don't preach to me your passion for your faith. Teach me through your compassion for your neighbors. Don't. And in the end, I'm not as interested in what you have to tell or sell as I am and how you choose to live and give. Now, I I don't agree with everything that Senator Cory Booker has to say. I don't even know if he can live up to the standard he's calling the church to. I don't know the man. But I hear these words from my patients. And it breaks my heart to hear them as they talk about the church. They don't talk about Jesus that way. They still like Jesus. Jesus is okay. But the church, eh, not so much. And I can just get the picture of Jesus. He always surrounded by crowds of people. And they weren't the best of society. They weren't the brightest in society. They were the down and out. They were the dregs. They were the deplorables. They were the prostitutes. They were the drug addicts, they were the alcoholics. They were the broken. They were the lame, they were the blind, they were the lepers. And they flocked to him. But do we flock to our churches today? James said it in 2:17, so you see faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good fruit deeds, it's dead and it's useless. What James is rejecting is the notion that one can have faith by itself without the accompanying actions. A conviction or intellectual belief that refuses to obey the commands of Christ is unprofitable. It's dead. Good deeds are the fruit of living faith. I struggle with that one growing up. Good deeds. What do you mean good deeds? It's just not, it's not the gospel of deeds, it's the gospel of believing intellectually. If there are no positive actions, then the professed faith is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. Those are James's words, not mine. The right actions prove our faith to be real faith. Believing involves faith keeping company with actions. If those around us note our actions, they should be led to know the faith that motivates them. If others hear us speak of faith, they must also see us act out that faith. Why was Mother Teresa so attractive? Huh? She gave all the time. She helped others. Her passion. Where did she live? Where did she work? Where nobody else wanted to go. Would you want to go live in Calcutta and work amongst the lepers and the poor and the outcast? Give everything that you have away and go and live and serve amongst those kind of people? And yet Mother Teresa had a platform like nobody else. She spoke to kings and presidents. She spoke to Congress. She spoke to all the high and mighty universities. She spoke to those kinds of people. She had a platform, and she used that platform, and she challenged everybody. I love a story told about her when she was meeting, in a meeting she was being honored for, and President Clinton happened to be there. And she wasn't awed by being in the presence of President Clinton. She attacked him for his stand on abortion she lived a life that gave evidence of the faith that she had in her savior in james two eighteen, he says now someone may argue some people have faith others have good deeds but i say how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds i will show you my faith By my good deeds a former pastor of mine described the mission of the church and of the Christian as this demonstrating and declaring Christ to people that's the mission of the church to demonstrate and declare Christ I've never forgotten that and that's the call of James in this chapter Our faith cannot be lived out in a vacuum. We cannot hide ourselves away in a church bubble and shout out our invectives at the unbelieving, ungodly world around us. Our faith comes alive when it's demonstrated and declared to those around us. The hurting, the confused, the homeless, the elderly, the orphans, the widows, the LGBTQ community. Shock. I visited with a, a gay couple months ago now. And they, as soon as they saw the word chaplain, tsh, claws came out. Defensive. <sighs> Teeth were, were bared. They were ready for an attack. I didn't attack. It's not my place to attack. I tried to be Jesus to them. They were hurting. One of them was hospitalized. They were hurting. They just needed somebody to come alongside and care for them. They were floored. I was floored by their reaction towards me. They were floored by the fact that I didn't berate them and condemn them. Instead, I showed love of Christ to them. And it set up other opportunities and other occasions with the same couple. How about the abortion doctor or perhaps your Muslim neighbor? (laughs) James responded with a challenge. I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds, but I will show you my faith through my good deeds. In other words, don't tell me about your faith. Show it to me. Isn't that kind of counterintuitive to what we've been taught? We need to, we've been taught we need to talk about our faith. Yes, we do need to talk about our faith, but we have a whole better hearing if we show that faith, more reception on the part of people if we show that we have this faith, that the love of Christ is being demonstrated through us as we declare the love of Christ to others. Faith cannot be demonstrated apart from action. Faith is within us. It can only be seen by the action it produces through us. Anyone can profess faith, but only action shows its genuineness. Dave Thomas. Everybody heard Dave Thomas, founder of Wendy's? Everybody frequent Wendy's? Dave Thomas is no longer with us, but Dave Thomas was an amazing person. He left behind more than, a thou- more than just thousands of Wendy's restaurants. He also left behind a legacy of being practical, hardworking man who was respected for his down-to-earth values. Among the pieces of good advice that have outlived the smiling entrepreneur is his view of what Christians should be doing with their lives. Thomas, who as a youngster was influenced by, too, for Christ by his grandmother, said that believers should be roll-up-your-sleeves Christians. In his book, Well Done, Thomas wrote the following, Roll-up-your-shirt-sleeve Christians, see Christianity as faith and action. They will make time to talk with God through prayer, study scripture, with devotion, be super active in their church, and take their ministry to others to spread the good word. He went on to say that there are anonymous people who are are doing good for Christ, maybe doing even more good than all the well-known Christians in the world. You don't know what impact your life will have on somebody just by the way you extend grace to somebody. By taking a meal to a neighbor who's a shut-in. By just calling on somebody to say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while, how are you doing? A A wellness check. Makes a huge difference. Jesus said in Matthew 7, a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just As you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. And Jesus tells us that if we do not produce good fruit, we'll be chopped down and thrown away. Why? Because a tree that doesn't produce good fruit is dead and it's useless. So here are five obvious but very challenging conclusions that James thinking leads us to. First, true faith in Jesus produces actions that are like the actions that Jesus displayed. Secondly, true faith causes us to reach out to those in need. True faith causes us to seek those who need to hear the gospel. Our antennas are up and we're looking around. We're we're, we're looking to see who is it that we can reach out to. True faith causes us to do the acts of kindness for those around us, even if it means going out of our way. See, that's my struggle right there with those guys on the corner. Is it going out of my way? No, I'm driving by them, but in a sense, it it is going out of my way because I'm struggling with my own prejudices. How do I reach out to these guys? True faith causes others to see Jesus in us because we are doing the things that Jesus did. Don't tell me about your faith. Show it to me. So what is faith? It's something that you live out in your daily life. There's a passage in the Bible we're all very familiar with, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you that also is in Christ Jesus. I read that, I've read that passage in, in NIV and NASB and all the English Standard all for years now. And it, but it, it, I read it in the New Century Version and it, it changed my life. It changed, it's, it's changing my life. It's changing my way of thinking. In the New Century Version it says, In your lives you must think and act like Christ Jesus. I love that. In your lives you must think and act like Christ Jesus. I would suggest to you that that is what James is saying to us. In this crazy, mixed up and divided and dangerous world that we live in, we are called to think and act like Jesus. To demonstrate and declare Jesus. To not just talk about our faith, but to engage a broken and hurting community with loving service. Talk is cheap But a faith that works is a faith that impacts and changes lives and truly represents God's intentions for his church, for us. The hurting are all around us. They're in our families. They're on our streets. They're in our communities. Perhaps they're in this church. Do we see them? You too can minister to them by being aware and making time just to listen, as I said, to bring a meal, to pay a bill, to offer a prayer. Don't tell me about your faith. I jumped way ahead there. Don't tell me about your faith. Show it to me. That's James's challenge. And the challenge we face today in a rapidly changing society. The message and the mission are the same. Have been the same since Jesus came. Have been the same since the church was introduced. Is the same as the early church. The mission and the message are the same. But the method, how we accomplish that mission. That all depends upon your creativity. And your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. So that's my prayer for these guys as I drive by them. Lord, they're there. I see them. They're hurting. They have some kind of need, obviously. So what can I do to demonstrate and declare Christ to these young men? And you may be in the same situation. You may be driving by people on a daily basis. They may be down the street from you. Lord, what can I do that can demonstrate and declare Christ to those people? Your creativity and his sensitivity, or your sensitivity to him and his creativity working through you, boom. Amazing what you can do. And God is honored. Christ is glorified. And we're doing what we're called to do, to live out a faith that works. Let's pray.